Hello, listeners old and new. Thank you so much for tuning in, as always. Before we begin, I have a request for you. If you haven't already, please visit us in the Apple Podcast directory and leave our show a review. It makes a huge difference in terms of new listeners being able to find our work, and we appreciate it so much. Also, remember to keep listening after the credits of this week's show. You'll hear a sneak preview of next week's story. And with that, let's begin. Spoke Media. Greetings, ghost family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. The alert listeners among you will recall that last season, our team successfully investigated the disappearance of a grandfather's corpse, a journey which took us from a cacophonous Dunkin' Donuts in Queens to a quiet subdivision in Tampa to in a development that was very exciting for me personally, an actual lanai. For the uninitiated, a lanai is an enclosed veranda with floor-to-ceiling screens, so it's like you're inside and outside at the same time. Lanais are ideal for drinking tequila sunrises on, which, naturally, was a key part of our investigative process. Surprisingly, given the generally hapless nature of our approach as detectives in that episode, this season... Our mailbox was inundated with requests to solve similar riddles. An uncle's missing leg, which was embalmed and sold at a yard sale. A grandfather whose grandkids are convinced he was D.B. Cooper. And a hotel wall rumored to be filled with skeletons. Those requests were intriguing, to be sure. But most captivating of all was a message from one Michael Falco. Hi, family ghosts. Subject line. The Chinese food incident. It has haunted our family for 25 years. Story's pretty simple. My mom and dad went out to eat Chinese food. The leftovers sat in the fridge overnight, and when my mother went to eat them for lunch the next day, the contents were missing. Upon discovering the missing leftovers, Michael goes on to explain, his mother flew into a blind rage. She summoned her husband and all six of her children to the family room, where she embarked on a seven-hour inquisition You heard that right, seven hours, at the conclusion of which no one confessed. So she drew up a ballot on a chalkboard and ordered everyone to vote for the person they thought had committed the crime. And when the results were tallied... I was eventually named as the prime suspect and grounded. I have no idea why, except I'm a middle child with a deeply guilty heart. Now, on the surface, the circumstances in this case were perhaps less dramatic than some of the other mysteries we considered. But then there's this detail in the middle of it. Producer Odelia Rubin. It has haunted our family for 25 years. 25 years! Who still talks about missing takeout 25 years later? What kind of a family does this? What kind of family indeed? As Odelia and I were about to discover, the kind that relives this story every time they get together, and for which said tellings begin innocently enough. And then she woke up the next morning to get her leftovers, and they were gone. And so she said, who ate And the empty box was in the fridge. I don't don't remember that part. (laughs) But inevitably devolve into this. Oh, I, 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 I have no 
This week on the show, a story about a story. From Spoke Media and WALT, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is Episode 12, The Chinese Food Incident. Our investigation begins after the break. Welcome back to the show. This week, producer Odelia Rubin and I are trying to solve a decades-old crime, a missing plate of Chinese food leftovers devoured 25 years ago in the middle of the night. The accused culprit, Michael, says it wasn't him. There is no forensic evidence, and every time the family rehashes the incident, no one's willing to confess. This one's going to be tough, but you don't call the family ghosts team for the easy ones. Before we got any further, we needed to know a little bit more about Michael's family, the Falcos. From his message, we didn't know much beyond their affinity for accusations and sweet and sour chicken. So, we asked Michael to put us in touch with an outside source who could tell us more. Hello? Hi, Joe. This is Odelia and Sam. Hi. How's it going? Good. Michael suggested a guy named Joe O'Toole. Before we proceed, it's important to note that an astonishing number of the people you're going to meet in this story are named Joe. So we're going to refer to this Joe as just O'Toole. They were great at just dealing with any issues that came along. And if that meant throwing somebody uh, under the bus and then laughing about it, as we are, you know, 20 years, 20 some odd years later, uh, that's how they dealt with things. And they, they they were successful in doing that. O'Toole told us he spent a lot of time with the Falcos in the mid-90s after he dropped out of college. Their mom would always call down, is Joe eating dinner with us? And of course, the answer was always yes. Dinner, O'Toole explained, was an ideal laboratory for observing the Falco family dynamic up close. He recalled one particular example involving Julie, who's one of Michael's older sisters. Julie was, was applying for colleges and... She was kind of debating where she was going to go to school. I had gone to University of Kansas. She said she thinks she's going to K-State. And I just kind of chimed in, well, that's, that seems like a mistake to me, just being sarcastic given its arrival. Well, she got very upset and stood up at, at the dinner table and said, fuck you, Joe, you don't even live in this house. And storms out of the room. And everybody looks at each other and just starts laughing. <laughs> and, and it was all fine. So it was that sort of thing that was just refreshing, that something serious could happen, but it would be okay, and you would get past it. Life with the Falcos was refreshing for O'Toole. It was different than what he was used to. I think a lot of the way we dealt with issues in our family was just a lot of unspoken things. Um, punishment uh, would, was usually like emotional isolation is what I kind of learned to call it. Um, being around the Falco family was just, they were still accepting even when things went wrong. But if the Falcos are so good at confronting tense situations in the moment and then laughing off that tension, 
what's different about the Chinese food incident? Because Michael certainly isn't over it. He feels guilty, and he wants answers. Michael was born in Kansas City in the early 80s, the fourth of six siblings. In person, Michael is friendly, talkative, and analytical. He's always been curious about the story behind the story, ever since he was a little kid in church, where he'd get distracted during mass and stare up at the ceiling. I can remember it had these, like, massive rafters throughout it. And I had, like, in my mind, there were, like, these little people <laughs> living in this world. Like, you know, they were, like, as close, I think, I came to an imaginary friend. They had, like, trains, like Disney World or something, and they had lives, and I was somehow, like, their leader or something. Just this, like, totally lost in my imagination of, like, making up this, like, whole world, like, so as not to deal with the thing in front of me. Another thing Michael's always been is a little bit in his head. One of his relatives described him as the kind of person who would design a new, state-of-the-art road, a kind that had never been built before, and would then get hit by a truck while trying to cross that road. Michael told us that even though he didn't pay a lot of attention in church, his plan as a kid was to grow up and become a priest. At first, we were a little confused by that, but then he explained. You're raised Catholic to understand that, like, one route, if you're gay, is to become a priest so that you don't have to worry about sex and such things. And so I think in my mind, I, there was a scenario in which like, I never had to be in a relationship that I could have just kind of skipped to being a priest and wouldn't have ever had to like, come out or anything like that. This is where we discovered one of the keys to understanding Michael. He's always felt like he's had to hide the truth about himself. And around the time of the Chinese food incident in the mid-90s, that feeling was particularly acute. Like, I would actually have that nightmare most nights where, like, someone would find out I was gay, and then I'd wake up and I'd feel the relief and be like, oh, thank God, that didn't happen. That's the headspace Michael was in the night his mother came home with Chinese food leftovers, and someone ate those leftovers, and everyone decided that it was Michael. For Michael, the two things, coming out and the Chinese food incident, have always felt linked. In his first email to us, he described his 11-year-old self as having a guilty heart. You know, it's like magical thinking, essentially. Like, it was like a sense that the whole world revolved around me, that I had, like, the ability to fuck things up so badly, and that I was bad, and that, like, you know, of course things, of course the universe always, like, you know, would conspire against me, or, like, something would happen, and, like, I'd have to, like, live with the consequences of that thing. And so, even though Michael swears he doesn't remember eating the leftovers, it's always made sense to him that he was the one that the family found guilty that day. I mean, the, I always thought it was the sexuality, to be honest. I always assumed it was the sense of, the sense that, like, I had this secret, that I had this thing that I couldn't share, that everybody could see it. I knew they could see it, and so I had to do everything in my power to hide it. And, like, from that, you start feeling bad about yourself. You start thinking, like, of course, like, I deserve this. Odelia and I were really struck by how hard Michael is on himself. As absurd as this story seemed on its face— it's clearly a vessel for a lot of self-doubt for Michael, both then and now. That's heavy to walk around with. That's heavy. That's yeah. Feeling. I mean, it's, it shouldn't feel like that much of a weight, but it, it does feel like a, I can just see the ways in which like, I can disappoint people or things like that. And I think mm -hmm. like, this, this feels like one of those. This poor guy. Odelia and I just could not believe that someone as caring and sensitive as Michael would have stolen anyone's leftovers, let alone been allowed to stand falsely accused for 25 years. 
So how could a family that was so accepting of O'Toole, so quick to laugh off a screaming outburst, so seemingly at ease in the midst of drama, how could that be the same family that made its own son feel like a criminal outcast? There was only one way to find out. Okay, well, have a great trip to Kansas City and make sure you tell them all I said hello. After the break, Odelia and I visit the Falcos, and O'Toole's prediction comes true. It'll be very interesting. <laughs> Michael told us the whole Falco family, him, his five siblings, and their spouses, would all be getting together in late June at the family's house in Kansas City, which, Odelia and I discovered as we pulled into the driveway, features a lush green lawn with a four-foot-tall brick sign that reads Falco in thick block letters. Clearly, the Falcos are a proud bunch, but also a suspicious one. So, we set up our microphones in the den and started interrogating them, one by one. First up in our rogues gallery is Joe, Michael's older brother. The family calls Joe, Joe Three, which, as we've mentioned, is convenient, given the wide variety of Joes lurking in the corners of this story. So we'll call him Joe Three also. Joe Three was 19 at the time of the incident. He'd dropped out of college and moved into the basement with his drum set, he and his friends had a heavy metal band. Our stage name that year was uh, J.D. and the CKO, Jeffrey Dahmer and the Cooked Kid Orchestra. <laughs> the name, Joe Three assured us, was just a joke. He liked getting a rise out of people. And as for what Joe Three dislikes... Yeah, I don't necessarily like different foods to be touching or mixed up. And when it comes to sharing food... Yeah, I'm not really into used food. So which is it? Merry basement prankster who might have stolen the Chinese food to get a rise out of everyone? Or reclusive basement musician and picky eater with zero interest in someone else's greasy leftovers? It was too early to tell. Next in our lineup of suspects is Julie, a couple years older than Michael. Her siblings used to call her the Black Sheep, which isn't a bad pseudonym for a criminal. Julie told us she was moody in those days, and she used to volunteer to run errands for her mom just so she could have some time to herself. I love to smoke in my car. Julie was 14 or 15 around the time of the Chinese food incident, and when she wasn't running errands for her mom, she fought with her constantly. You know, the mom whose leftovers were stolen. Odelia and I filed that piece of information under M for motive. Plus, we heard from a number of sources that Julie had a good friend she was spending a lot of time with in those days. A friend by the name of Mary Jane. Yeah, the other thing that Michael has mentioned was that you might have been smoking pot at the time. I don't think I was. I was, think I started smoking cigarettes. I don't think I smoked pot until I was a sophomore. I'll admit, Julie was my prime suspect going into this interrogation. A freshly minted stoner, just home from a night of partying and overcome with the munchies? What's going to be more appealing when she opens the fridge than a bulging container of Chinese food? But Julie claims the pot smoking didn't start until later. Hmm. Next up, Patty, Michael's oldest sister. 
Her siblings refer to her as Perfect Patty, sarcastically, of course, because Patty was anything but perfect by her own admission. She was 17 at the time of the crime, and she says she loved to party and she used to come home drunk a lot. She also told us a story about a time she had a friend over when she wasn't supposed to, and Julie, the black sheep, tattled on her. So Patty and her friend got revenge on Julie. We pinned her on the ground and we were hitting her. I think I spit in her mouth. I was like, why would you even say that? Patty was clearly willing to intimidate people into silence when they knew she'd done something wrong. Then again, she's got an alibi for the night in question from this guy. I just remember showing up and then you're like, I can't go out because somebody made my mom mad. I'm like, do I have to go home? You're like, yes. That's Joe Novacek, Patty's husband and another of the seemingly infinite array of Joes in this story. At the time, Novacek and Patty had just started dating and they enjoyed taking advantage of the cavernous Falco home for covert trysts. But on the night of the Chinese food incident, there would be no such neckery. I just remember being there and thinking, this is weird, I have to go home because somebody ate Chinese food. Because I remember being mad. Right. I'm like, God, I'm not gonna get to make out with my girlfriend because somebody ate the stupid Chinese food. Right. Of course, Novacek is not the most credible witness. He's not gonna say anything to incriminate his wife. Then again, why would Patty have lied to him that night? If she was the one who'd eaten the leftovers, wouldn't she have said, you have to go home because I ate some Chinese food? Another dead end. Let's turn to Michael, our supposedly reliable protagonist, who we've already met. I will just add here that we heard another story about Michael from O'Toole, who told us that pranks and dares were pretty common in the Falco family, and that Michael was always looking for ways to fit in with everyone's expectations of who he thought they wanted him to be. In one incident of Falco legend, Michael's siblings all got drunk and dared Michael to eat a pile of dollar bills, which he did, which is disgusting, but also kind of in character for a younger sibling who feels guilty all the time and doesn't want anyone to notice something about himself that he's ashamed of. We already wanted to believe that Michael wasn't guilty. But could the answer be more complicated than we suspected? Perhaps Michael did eat the Chinese food, but only because he was put up to it by one of his conniving siblings. Was he protecting someone? We also met Ryan, Michael's younger brother. Ryan, we'd heard, was also a moody kid. Around the time of the incident, he was 10 and quick to tantrums. Plus, he'd started sleepwalking. Exactly the state in which one might unwittingly wander down to the kitchen and eat something unconsciously, only to awaken in horror the next day, realizing what you've done. Still a terrible sleeper. Yeah, yeah. sleepwalking, sleep talking. Yeah. Um, I've never been caught sleep eating, mm -hmm. uh, but I know it's a thing. You know, I know it's a deal, so maybe I was sleep eating. On the flip side, however, Ryan's always claimed it couldn't have been him because he doesn't like Chinese food. I mean, I eat it now like if I'm drinking, you know, mm -hmm. hey, that's good. But no, I'm never like, oh, let's go out and get some Chinese food. So it, when you're drinking like uninhibited, then you... <laughs> oh, yeah. It's oh, not... yeah. Bring it on. Bring it on. <laughs> Ryan's siblings point to the fact that he claims not to like Chinese food, yet will eat it lustily if his inhibitions are lowered, as a smoking gun. Clearly, they say, he loves Chinese food, but has repressed his love for it out of guilt. It's an interesting theory. 
The youngest Falco sibling is Katie, who was only seven the night this happened. And in a house with a heavy metal drummer living in the basement, two older sisters who like to party, one somnambulant older brother, and another on a perpetual quest to keep his true identity a secret, it's admittedly hard to imagine the seven-year-old is the one who snuck down to raid the fridge in the middle of the night. Then again, Katie was not a normal seven-year-old. She was a hellraiser, and she was proud of it. She has a binder in which she's preserved all of her detention slips from school, a compendium of malfeasance featuring such dastardly deeds as bringing a live cat to algebra class. I mean, two years before this all went down, I got kicked out of kindergarten. Like, I was that bad. How did you get kicked out of kindergarten? I locked my teacher in the bathroom. As shameless and gleefully mischievous as she was, Katie swears she didn't eat the Chinese food. <laughs> and just to be clear, nobody suspects you. No. I don't no. think so. No. At all. I only ate it... mashed potatoes, french fries, and chicken fingers. <laughs> Which leaves us with our two final suspects, the parents. Kathy, and you guessed it, Joe. Everybody likes Kathy. <laughs> if you could find somebody that doesn't like Kathy, I'd like to know their name. <laughs> I could give you a few things. Yeah, probably, but that's all right. Kathy, of course, is the victim of the crime and the one who called the infamous hours-long inquisition after which Michael says he was found guilty. But how did the Falcos become the kind of family that would hold such an inquisition in the first place? And I'm not sure why, you know, exactly why we got married. Seemed like the right thing to do, so we did. <laughs> because I asked you. Oh, is that what it was? <laughs> you proposed? I did. Yeah, the girls always want to know what the romantic moment was. <laughs> I said, well, it wasn't as romantic as you thought. Did you know at that point that you wanted a big family? Is that part of your plan? Uh, no. I have one sister, and we don't have much of a relationship. And I never, I don't think I ever thought about it. It was just whatever happens, happens. Honestly, I think it was whatever the Lord wanted, that's what we were going to have. I, I really, yeah. I, I, I believe that. Oh, I, we never true. did anything yeah. to avoid it. We never it. did anything to avoid it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> whatever came, came. <laughs> What came were the six shady characters we've just introduced you to. At first, Kathy and Joe Sr. were both working full-time, but before long, Kathy quit to be at home with the kids. And as a number of them told us, Kathy was always preoccupied with everyone's safety and well-being, sometimes to an extreme degree. Spunk ball. <laughs> Good old spunk ball. That? Now that's a ridiculous story. <laughs> at some point, Kathy apparently heard this story about a wave of incidents involving wads of cloth being soaked in gasoline and then tossed into cars that were stopped at traffic lights, accompanied by a lit match. They were referred to as spunk ball attacks. If we were to be driving down the driveway with our windows down, she would come out running like, windows up, windows up, spunk ball, spunk ball. Katie and her siblings learned to deal with Kathy's fixation on danger. Katie told us it comes from a loving place even if it doesn't always manifest itself in the most logical ways. For example, on my drive here, she called me twice to tell me not to talk on the phone <laughs> while I was driving. <laughs> and I would say, then why are you calling? And she laughed. She goes, oh, I know. And then she'd hang up. But clearly, things like spunk ball and stolen leftovers aren't over the top or ridiculous to Kathy. They matter. But why? Michael and Katie told us, that the multi-hour inquisition which followed the theft of the Chinese food was not the first family meeting 
the Falcos had during those days. I thought family meetings were often associated with the D word, Maybe divorce. There was... was always like, this is it. Yeah, oh, like, yeah, yes, done. yes, yes, yes. I would agree with that. That's the thing about Joe Sr. and Kathy. They don't always see eye to eye. Because I do what I want to do, and I try to get her to do what she wants to do. And we're not always on the same page, but we do what we want to do. <laughs> Around the time of the Chinese food incident, Joe Sr. did what he wanted. He quit his job at a plastics company, which also happened to be the family's only source of income. You come home one night and say, I have good news and I have bad news. Good news is I quit my job. Bad news is I don't really know what I'm going to be doing. Well, <laughs> so literally, <clears throat> I had cooked something and I left it on the stove for days because I just couldn't wrap my head around this. Mm. Everything was changing, so. I went out and bought a house, and it was it was a great house. <laughs> we do what we want to do. <laughs> Buying the house was a shot across Joe Sr.'s bow. If he was going to play fast and loose with the family's financial security, Kathy was going to move the family somewhere she thought they could afford to live, whether or not Joe Sr. wanted to come along. Joe Sr. eventually gave in and joined the rest of the Falcos at the new, smaller house, but tensions between Kathy and Joe Sr. continued to simmer. And I used to always tell Katie, go pack her bags. We're going. We're going to my mom's. And then we never would go. Never. But I, Just you and Katie? We had already divided out who would get who. You guys divided out amongst yourselves? Is that true? <laughs> I knew we were getting. Mom divided out. I was going to get you. Okay. And Patty. And Patty. <laughs> and Katie. And your dad was going to get Julie, Ryan, and Joe. So it seems the Chinese food went missing at a moment when all manner of deception was brewing in the various corners of the Falco estate. And on the night of the incident, Every suspect had a perfect motive and a perfect alibi. After the break, we'll see if two imperfect investigators can finally solve the perfect crime. So, it's a seemingly normal night in 1993. Tense as things were for the Falcos in those days, Kathy and Joe still found time now and again to sneak out for a date night. And on the night in question, they drove down to their favorite spot, a Chinese food restaurant that wasn't too expensive but had tablecloths. By all accounts, it was a pleasant meal. Nobody announced they'd quit their job or purchased any real estate. And I had leftover Chinese food, and I had it, and I had put the little box on top of it. And then how, you know, they would put paper around that to-go box. Was it like Like the... checkered paper, that little... Oh, okay. Yeah. Kathy and Joe Sr. made an early night of it. They arrived back at their house around 9.30 or 10 and headed to bed. And then, a few hours later, as the sun was coming up... And so then I came down, probably for breakfast, and thought I was going to eat it. I don't know. And I came down, and I looked, I went to grab it, 
and the paper was just all over the plate and the empty box. Kathy summoned her six children. It was time for a family meeting. One by one, the Falco siblings appeared, creeping downstairs in bleary-eyed confusion. So I asked who ate the Chinese, I said, who ate the Chinese food? All of them. Uh, you want to say that again? <laughs> who ate the Chinese No. You might have just been a little bit more vocal. So what did I say, honey? What do you think you said? <laughs> mm-hmm. Who ate the Chinese food? <laughs> Maybe a little bit firmer, right? <laughs> I just remember mom losing her you-know-what. Just, like, screaming and freaking out. (laughs) I think it was like, you know, who ate the fucking Chinese food? Now, up to this moment, the story pretty much matches what we've heard. Kathy has an outsized reaction to something seemingly minor. Everybody kind of rolls their eyes and grudgingly goes along with it. Only here's where something fascinating happens. That bit about Kathy freaking out... That's the last part of the story that any of the Falcos seem to agree on. I remember we had to we had to call each other out on a board. Well, where was the board? Um, I thought it was in the family room, but somebody said it was on the back of a door. No, your brothers would always say it, like the... it was an easel. But one of those brothers, Ryan, remembers even less than Patty. I, I vaguely remember that we all had to sit down. I vaguely remember that I don't even know how old I was. I vaguely remember that we all had to sit down? That hardly sounds like Michael's memory of a multiple-hour inquisition resulting in a unanimous conviction by a jury of his siblings. And, as for Michael's memory, that he was definitively judged to be guilty? I mean, basically, no one still wanted to say who ate the Chinese food. I feel like Ryan is the one who comes up the most in a group setting. Just because of his aversion to Chinese food. Yeah, I don't want to say I'm guilty because I don't think I am, uh, but I can't rule it out 100%. You don't remember it at all, we're no, basically. No, it might have been like a fit of rage, you know, when people just lose their mind. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I always assumed that like everybody was going to blame me for it. And I I don't know. I don't know if I did it. I. If, I've got a lot of repressed memories. So you don't have a concrete memory of, okay, this this evening of, you know, interrogation is settled and we've decided it was Michael. Right, I do not. Nope, I don't. Do you remember who was judged guilty at the time? I don't remember there being a verdict at all. And so till this day, I still do not know who ate the Chinese food. So for all of Michael's certainty about the verdict, nobody else seems to think he was the one who was actually found guilty. For the most part, when pressed, most of the Falcos ended up telling us some version of what Joe Three said. I mean, I don't really remember. I remember the stories more than the incident, I guess. So if everybody remembers the story, but nobody remembers what happened, what exactly is this memory that's haunted the family for 25 years? Was there some other element in all this that we were missing? A clue in someone's interview that we hadn't focused on in the moment? Of course there was. There was something Kathy said in our first conversation with her that stuck in my mind. Did you know at that point that you wanted a big family? Is that part of your plan? Uh, No, I didn't have a clue. I I had one sister and 
we don't have much of a relationship. It was quick, and it went by so fast that we almost missed it. But the more I thought about it, the more it made me realize we might have been thinking about this story the wrong way. Towards the end of our visit, we pulled Kathy aside and asked her to tell us a little bit more about that sister. She's a drug addict, and she lost her job for selling drugs. And she stole drugs, money from my mom. And she was in a nursing home because she had a lot of issues. And when it came time for her to go home, we had gone to visit her, you know, several times. And when it came time for her to come home, I, I said, you know, just give me your phone number and we'll keep in contact. And she goes, I really don't want to waste my minutes on you. Kathy says she and her sister were never close. And Kathy made up her mind that her own kids wouldn't ever be able to say that about each other. Did that affect the way you raised your family? I think it probably did. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I grew up in a very, very dysfunctional family. To hear Kathy tell it, her father put his family through hell. Gambling debts, mafia connections. Kathy told us she married Joe Sr. as quickly as she did, in part because she wanted to get away from it all. Say what you will about the Falcos, what with their overheated debates about seemingly trivial events and occasionally cruel pranks. But having spent a few days with literally all of them, two parents coming up on 50 years of marriage, six kids and their spouses, most of them with multiple children of their own, I couldn't get over the fact that everybody there couldn't think of a better place to be than together at Kathy and Joe Sr.'s house in the roasting late summer Kansas City heat gamely rehashing a story they've been telling and retelling for 25 years. As someone who's too scared to visit my grandmother two towns over because I'm worried she's disappointed that I'm not married, who has to have a drink before I call my uncle, who has panic attacks on the rare occasions my parents are in the same room, I think that's beautiful. And the thing is, it doesn't happen by accident. It takes effort. And the longer we spent with the Falcos, the more it became clear that the person putting in most of that effort is Kathy. Spunkball, threatening to take the kids to her mother's, the Chinese food inquisition. The way I see it, these weren't examples of moments that almost tore the Falcos apart. These were stories about Kathy fighting to keep the Falcos together. We're really a close family, and I would like to have it stay that way, so you've really got to work at it. Kathy's methods may be unorthodox. But from what I could tell, after a few days in Falco land, they work. One thing that the Falcos always do when they're together is go on a pub crawl. They invited Odelia and I along one night, and as we were sitting in the back room of a bar carved into an old boat, we decided it was time to settle this thing once and for all. Um, now that we're all sitting in a bar and had a few drinks, we just vote so now. Hot back here. Oh, we just vote now. Oh, we it was time for another vote. Everyone wrote down their top three suspects on small slips of paper, and we put them in a hat. If ever there was going to be a confession, this was the time. Everyone was hammered, sweaty, leaning in close at the table under a low-hanging lamp. And here we were, reenacting the vote that supposedly happened at that family meeting in 1993. It was the most dramatic possible moment to reveal a secret you've been keeping for 25 years. 
Here's the deal. Hold on. If I'm your lawyer, I'm not putting you on the stand. And so, one by one, I started to pull the slips out of the hat. So this first vote, it says Chinese food. Yep. (laughs) So the Chinese food ate itself. (laughs) But given the opportunity to give the Chinese food incident story its thrilling conclusion, nobody took it. This person submitted three votes. (laughs) Three question marks. I'll tell you the picture. We'll spare you the cacophony and just tell you, we received at least one vote for each sibling, as well as a couple votes for, quote, a family ghost, which I'm pretty sure was the Falcos making fun of me, which was great. For a moment, I got to feel like a Falco. If, in the end, it doesn't matter who ate the leftovers, what does it mean that Michael's been carrying around this guilt for the last 25 years? For what it's worth, in all the conversations we had, we never got the sense that there was much in the way of family drama associated with Michael's coming out, though it's of course understandable that he was worried there would be at the time. I think I've spent so much of my life having to be good because I thought everyone thought I was bad. (laughs) Um, That's, I mean, the same reason that I like baseball, which is like when I was 12 and gay, I was like looking for something that would show people that I was straight. And baseball was like a perfect, you know, it was like the perfect thing because like who's gay and likes baseball? Like, you know, that was like my mind at the time. You know, and I I do, I love baseball, but do I love baseball because I like baseball? I mean, like, you know, I guess I do like baseball, but, like, the reason that I like baseball is very different than, like, just liking it. And it kind of feels like, am I good because, like, I'm really good? Or am I good because, like, I felt so bad that I had to be good and then, like, eventually just became, like, you know, someone that I think people think is a good person? I don't know. There's a way of hearing it that's also analog or corollary to the Chinese food story, did you really love baseball or was baseball a way for you to tell yourself a certain story? Yeah. At this point, I've come to the realization that I don't think we'll ever really know. That's Michael's brother, Ryan, who may or may not have eaten the Chinese food in his sleep. We still don't know. I'm glad we have that story. For the most part, I'm, I'm glad we had every little bit of our childhood because it made us who we are. Um, you know, seeing seeing how dad works through stuff and seeing how mom, it, it definitely, I feel like it's made me a better human being. I have to admit, that's a conclusion I was not expecting from this investigation. I feel like this story has made me a better human being. And this was the moment where I felt like I finally understood the meaning of the Chinese food incident. The moment I realized that if the culprit was ever actually revealed, the Falcos would get closure, but they'd lose something way more valuable. The story. So, on our last night in Kansas City, the family was gathered. All the siblings and spouses and their kids, plus Joe Sr.'s mom, Nani, who's in her 90s and had just gotten back from a poker game, four generations crammed into Kathy and Joe Sr.'s basement. 
We were watching a home video from the late 80s, Michael and his brothers and sisters unwrapping presents on Christmas morning, and then performing a play about the birth of Jesus from a script written by Joe Sr. Okay, scene one. Talk louder. As much as everyone was enjoying the memories, Odelia and I could sense the anticipation in the air. There were no more suspects to interrogate. They knew this was our last night. They were expecting a verdict. So I stood up, timidly, a non-Falco in a room full of Falcos, and tried to tell them what I think it means to be a Falco. We have not figured out who ate the Chinese food. (laughs) But I think the theory that we have arrived at is that none of you guys want to know. And the reason I'm saying that is because everybody here knows how to push everybody else's buttons just enough so the bomb doesn't go off. (laughs) And we kind of have the sense that in doing that, you like let off just enough steam that this incredibly rich connection of so many kids and so many kids of kids never weakens. And the Chinese food story seems like the ultimate manifestation of that. Because you guys have been telling it for, what is it, 25 years now? And it's this incredible way of saying, I know you, you're the person who does this. Like, you're the person who says they don't like Chinese food, so you're clearly traumatized by the fact that you ate the Chinese food. (laughs) Or you're the person who was drinking a lot in high school, so you must be the one who ate the Chinese food. Or you're the person who was always pulling those pranks, you're the one who ate the Chinese food. And everybody has a perfect motive and a perfect alibi, but nobody remembers the actual night in question. Everybody just seems to remember the story. So we are forced to arrive at the conclusion that what is important here is not the Chinese food at all, (laughs) but the story of the Chinese food. And the story is, I mean, not to be too cheesy about it, but the story is the reason everybody's here. Yeah. I pointed out to Sam and Odie, I think when that realization dawned on Kitty, was like, well, yeah, I don't think he was just interested in Chinese food. (laughs) (laughs) And so the case is closed, but the story continues. They're passing this story on to their children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Someday these children will talk about their family and the Chinese food story. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> family Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman, with Odelia Rubin, Jennifer Lai, Jacob Smith, Lindsay Cradwell, Jenna Hannum, and Janiel Kastner. Our story editor is Michaela Bly. This episode was mixed by Evan Arnett and featured original music by Ben Levin. Our theme music is by Luis Guerra. Executive producers for season two are myself, along with Keith Reynolds and Aaliyah Tavakolian at Spoke Media. Find more great podcasts at spokemedia.io. Special thanks this week to Mia Lobel. To see Falco family photographs and much, much more, please visit our website, familyghostspodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our email list, The Ghost Post. If you'd like to follow our show on Twitter and Instagram, you can find us at FamGoShow. That's F-A-M-G-H-O Show. Stay tuned after the credits for a sneak preview of next week's episode, and thank you for listening to Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted.
Next time on Family Ghosts. Kimberly's grandparents get caught up in one of the most disgraceful episodes in American history, the Japanese-American prison camps. And a few years later, when their son is born, they refuse to tell him about it. If we brought it up, uh, the people we were talking to would always change the subject. They would, you know, all of a sudden they would stop smiling. They would just not talk about that at all. So what happened in the prison camps? And why all the secrecy? You hear other stories, you hear about families who have an affair or things that are very shameful and they don't talk about. Yet this thing that my family was so ashamed of, like, shouldn't have been shameful. That's coming up next week when season two of Family Ghosts continues. You're listening to WALT. Homemade Radio.